Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. It's a mini version of the Bunker, like those fun-sized Mars bars that you can't find in Tesco's anymore. I'm Ian Dunt from Politics.co.uk, and before we meet our guest, a quick reminder that we're doing the Bunker versus Romaniacs live stream on Thursday evening, right after the NHS round of applause at 8 p.m. We're finalising the details at the moment, but do come follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore Pod and Romaniacscast to find out how to join in. The coronavirus has created a historic moment in Britain and the world, and our guest today probably influences more young minds about history than anyone else. Greg Jenner advises horrible histories on CBBC, hosts the You're Dead to Me podcast on BBC Sounds, and his new book, Dead Famous, An Unexpected History of Celebrity, is out now. Hello, Greg. How's, uh, how's lockdown treating you? It's not too bad. It's weird. Surreal, but it feels very much like working from home, which I've done for seven years. So I'm, I'm kind of used to being a loner, sat at home eating, you know, cheese on toast in the corner of the room. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I feel the same sort of way. Like it, it doesn't mean make the most change in your day to day life, but that weird background fuzz of sort of anxiety oh, and yeah. sort of terror that's buzzing around, it makes it quite hard to focus on the things that you otherwise would enjoy, like you know, books and movies. Yeah. And it's also the sort of weird thing of like, you know, my book came out last week and I'm trying to do the thing that authors are meant to do of sort of like, hey, buy my book. It's great. But like, <laughs> it just ultimately, you're like, um, and, you know, if you could try not catching a horrible disease at the same time, that would be great. It's just it's a sort of weird thing to try and carry on with life while at the same time there is this drumbeat of uh, yeah, Corona updates every night on the news and and that's sort of the worry mm. that, you know, I'm asthmatic, so I'm a little bit nervous that I might be one of the, the rare ones who gets it bad. And you just go, oh, yeah. so I'm trying to kind of carry on. But yeah, it is, it's a weird, it feels very surreal. And there are days where the sun is shining and the, and the magnolias are out and everything's gorgeous and lovely. And you think, oh, this is nice. <laughs> you switch on the telly and go, oh no, of course, that's, that's right. <laughs> the world has stopped. So... <laughs> What are you actually doing with the time? Are you getting on with work or are you sort of finding yourself in that weird doom loop of just sort of scanning Twitter and reacting with increasing degrees of horror and outrage? Um, I think I probably would have been doing that, except uh, the BBC in their sort of infinite wisdom very kindly went, uh, we think we can make use of you actually. Can you do a kind of emergency speedy podcast for kids to help them? Mm do homeschooling so um we have kind of postponed you're dead to me which is the podcast i do for sort of grown-ups with comedians and, and historians 
is a bit of fun and and very silly. And instead, we are going into production on the, a series for homeschooled kids that will romp through some fun stuff from history for the little ones who are stuck at home. So I guess I'm a bit a little bit kind of professionally distracted, which is quite nice actually. Yeah, yeah, that is nice, and also that you feel there's sort of like I guess social utility to the thing that you're doing, yeah. like helping parents, helping kids. Yeah, absolutely. I feel actually it's very rare that I'm ever useful. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not one of life's greats. Uh, you know, no one's ever like, oh, thank God, Greg's here. Um, but um, apart from in pub quizzes, but um, yeah, it does feel like okay, actually there's something I can do here that can help people out because obviously so many people are stuck at home. The kids are at home. The kids are, are stressed and worried and bored and tired and mm. weirded out. And they've also got to carry on with their schooling. But at the same time, so much of the way that schooling is created is to sort of be collaborative with your school friends, with the teacher there. And that's hard. So we're trying to create something that's a bit more podcasty and a bit more fun, but it does also hopefully get them thinking about the past and, and you know using those brain cells so we'll see how it goes it's quite fun making a show incredibly quick i mean i guess you're used to that but it you know from my point of view horrible history takes a year and a half to make so um making a podcast in three days it feels a bit rapid <laughs> yeah and no, that is that's pretty pacey whichever way you look at it <laughs> yeah um what does it i mean the, the scale of this thing at the moment we're, we're kind of grasping for comparisons either when it comes to policy when it comes to sort of the change of our life when it comes to economics and people are mostly failing you know like even you know looking at the economy i mean even sort of comparing it to the financial crash seems completely yeah. this is much bigger and more fast moving than that i mean where is in, in terms of truly massive historical events are we going to be talking about this do you think in 100 years time 200 years time I try as a historian not to project forward because everything, <laughs> everything I know about people in the past who've tried to sort of, you know, predict what would happen next, no one ever gets it right. And so mm. I'm trying not to get egg on my face. Um, the truth is, is that we never know how future generations will judge us and so forth. But this is obviously unprecedented in, in, in several ways. It is a global pandemic that is obviously terrifying we've had those before it's not the same as spanish flu it's not the same as the plague so those comparisons are not helpful but they are in our heads the kind of nightmare scenario i guess mm. so i can see why people bring them up but it, it's not the same um we've had financial crashes before obviously 2008 was awful and the great depression of 2930 was worse but this feels like a whole other type of slowdown i mean in some ways it's weird because it there are people i've seen on twitter sort of kind of going is this how socialism arrives i mean it's like a, it's almost like it's experimental test conditions to see if universal basic income and rolling out kind of provision for for all could work in theory and of course the problems are that you we don't know because the economy is not a normal economy anymore we've all slowed stopped you know we're working from home we're not working at all people have been furloughed they've lost their jobs it isn't normal service. So anything that is tried at this point, you can sort of say, well, it's experimental, but it's not even necessarily fully experimental because it's the variables aren't the same. So it just feels like we're in a sort of unique bubble. Um, and as a historian, yeah, obviously professionally, I'm fascinated by it, but as an individual, I have no idea what's coming tomorrow. So it is a bit nerve wracking, to be honest. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. What do you um? I, I take your point on you know the, the the weakness of the comparison to like the Black Death and the Spanish flu, and of course on severity and on mortality rates. But what yeah. if there's anything to sort of take from the, the social and political consequences um, which which came from there? Is there anything to learn um, from those events? Or is it just completely, basically, like it's just, it's just sort of I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, we're always trying to look at the past and, and see ourselves in, in history. That's, that's one of the appeals mm-hmm. of history. There's a wonderful piece, actually, um, in the London Review of Books written by Erin McGlack, um, and she's a historian of 17th century Italy. And it's a brilliant piece about what happened when the plague came to, I think it's Florence in uh, 1630. And um, it really, in some ways, is, is very alien and different. But in other ways, it really speaks to what we're going through now. It's about how do you get people to quarantine themselves? How do you get people to stop just going out in the street and having a party? What happens when the economy slows down? Uh, where does the food come from? Hmm. Um, what do you do with your kids? How do you pray? How do you keep your spirits up? You know, what happens when an entire community is indoors? Um <laughs> You know this, and this is in a period of history where obviously there weren't there weren't the kind of twenty four seven electricity and food delivery trucks that we've got. So um, it's a really beautiful, really fascinating piece that, on the one hand, says, "Well, look, the seventeenth century is really different," and on the other hand, "Oh, look at this! That feels you know when you see those videos on Twitter of um, of people in Italy singing songs together from their mm-hmm. balconies." It, there's a really lovely part of the um, of the essay that feels you know similar where people were praying communally and they were having indoor sermons from you know the priests you know this is obviously a catholic country at the time and they are essentially having a communion an entire city locked up and yet united in in grief in faith in prayer it's quite beautiful and um Mm. heartbreaking in other ways because obviously so many people would have been dying you know the, the plague would have been devastating and our mortality rates that we're dealing with right now are very scary, but plague was just, you know, horrific. So that's why I don't think the comparisons help, but there are definitely sociological and social comparisons where you can sort of see what happens when communities um, are forced to change it up and become little units of, you know, looking after each other. Uh, and what happens when you get, you know, the one idiot who's going to go outside and ruin it for everyone else? So, yeah, mm. give that piece a read if you can. It's definitely on my Twitter, definitely London Review of Books. Um, I think they posted it on their Twitter too. How do you feel celebrities who have dealt with this crisis so far? Because I'm not going to lie to you, like that Imagine rendition, I, I think actually may have Ooh, made yeah. me feel about 10 to 12 times worse than I was feeling <laughs> yeah. are there any, yeah. Are there any examples to cling to at the moment? um it's really fascinating isn't it because um as a historian of celebrity i obviously i'm professionally interested in celebrities but also just as a bloke who just sits on twitter quite a lot which is mostly what i do occasionally you stumble on these things and go oh my god that's someone's career that's just gone down the toilet in life. <laughs> like like there, there are celebrities out there just sort of saying stuff and you can literally hear the phone ringing as their manager gets on the line, like, stop, stop. <laughs> you are destroying a 30 year career. I mean, Madonna doing her Vogue, but fried fish interpretation. Holy dance. fuck. That was I so mean, fucking weird. Really weird. Really, really weird. And, and, you know, I, I'm not a massive Madonna fan, but she's an icon. She's one of the greats. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to like 
rubbish or whatever, but like it really felt like this was someone not quite understanding the potency of what they had just done. And <laughs> they sort of put it out and gone, that'll be a bit of fun. And I think the whole internet went, oh my God, does she know <laughs> that's what she looks like? Uh, because ultimately pop stars and celebrities are their products they're created they are crafted and curated they are you know performances these are real people but they when we see them when we engage with them when we enjoy their work they are putting their best face forward literally and they are photoshopped and they are lit beautifully they're wearing clothes they've got great uh, moisturizers and all that stuff and what's fascinating is how quickly the kind of <laughs> the mask has slipped a little bit and we're seeing a yeah. lot of celebrities being quite authentic, which is nice in some regards. And some of them are great at it. Some of them are really fun being authentic. Some of them have got a real sense of humor and they've got a playful side and it's, it's delightful. But some of the ones who are icons and stars are not reacting to it very well. And they are giving the game away a little bit. They're revealing quite a lot actually about their ordinariness and their slightly crap sense of humor. And it's, it's quite, <laughs> it's sort of, it's really interesting. And, and so, um, I'm quite enjoying it, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, the counterpoint, right, is Arnold Schwarzenegger, who seems to have reinvented <laughs> himself as some kind of weird Father Christmas figure, tremendously reassuring for some strange emotional reason to watch him play with, with tiny donkeys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, watching the Terminator sort of ride a bicycle around his, his garden while two small donkeys <laughs> chase him is... A sort of surreal fever dream and um but we're weirdly lovely and um and um and it reminds me of little sebastian from parks and recreation that sort of tiny donkey mm-hmm. that everyone yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Tiny horse that everyone loves um and sam neil is also a very reassuring presence on twitter he's mm-hmm. doing really lovely kind of wine reviews and reading poetry <laughs> and he's just really very very soothing and calming which is great so he's he's doing well out of it um Obviously, there are some celebs who are better than others at the whole sort of being funny thing. Um, Jack Black is being pretty funny. Uh, Robbie Williams is sort of doing, I think he's doing a, a Corona Rokey, which is his version of karaoke, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's sort of doing singing songs. I think quite a lot of celebs are doing songs, actually. Um, but there's Bake Off, you know, there's various celebrities baking stuff. There are celebs doing exercise classes. Um, a lot of footballers are doing kind of gym sessions for kids to follow along, which is quite nice, you know, trying to mm-hmm. keep, keep the fitness up for kids. Um, there is a sort of surrealism to watching these people who are, on the one hand, performing is their career and their livelihood. So this is how they express themselves anyway. But on the other hand, they're also like us. They're, they're a little bit lost as to what they're meant to do. And this is their attempt to help out. And sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's very helpful. But I think the Imagine video was a fascinating insight into the kind of innate solipsism of celebrity culture, where every single one of them is in a different key. They haven't, they, <laughs> at no point has any of them gone, hey, should we do this in C? <laughs> because, because they're all just in their own little bubble. And, and that's an amazing re- revelation that these people... We all assume celebrities know each other. We, we, in our head, all celebrities shop at the same place. They have dinner together. Mm-hmm. They're all best mates. And they're just not. And a lot of them have never met. And a lot of them don't even necessarily know anything about the other. And it's really funny when you see these sorts of mashup videos where 
someone's gone hey we'll do a great thing we'll do a kind of whip around everyone will do a everyone will do a five seconds of a classic song what song should we do oh let's do imagine by john lennon because that's lovely and you kind of go that's the wrong song choice don't do that and then for them all to do it in a completely different key at a different tempo some of them taking it really seriously some of them just in their dressing gown like (laughs) barely even bothering it's really funny because it just gets to the heart of what celebrity culture is which is that it's basically a bunch of individuals who occasionally try to coalesce into a like sort of avengers um super team for these charity things but normally they're carefully orchestrated by svengalis and managers and various you know record execs who kind of get them all in the room and they polish them up but here they've tried to do it organically and it's an absolute train wreck and and it's quite fun <laughs> about celebrities and political opinions i mean i noticed i noticed it recently with you know when ricky gervais did that was it the golden globes that he does the yeah and he did this quite bitter joke uh you know celebs he was like anyone coming up here that's going to talk about politics is like you know thank you god or whatever and then fuck off and i don't want to hear it which which i thought was quite extraordinary given the fact that ricky gervais is a a celebrity and b talks constantly about politics and yet, when I was, I mean, in your book, it's actually quite common, you know, for hundreds of years ago, that there was a political dimension to a lot of these people. Some of them were sort of, their celebrity was based through coming up through politics. Others were just political people as well as celebrities. It's not like a new idea in any way, is it? No, and funny enough, the earliest celebrity in my book, so my book basically argues celebrity culture is 300 years old, uh, and the earliest celebrity is from 1709, and he was mm-hmm. called Dr. Henry Sacheverell. He was a sort of furious a conservative theologian in a poodle wig, and he, um, he became a kind of huge political celebrity he gave a speech in st paul's cathedral uh, attacking the government he's you know basically saying the church of england had gone soft and all that kind of stuff and he became this um divisive lightning rod for the nation and uh, split the country down the middle can you imagine that ian the country divided by politics um <laughs> and uh, and there were those who championed him and and you know loved him almost like he was a champion boxer or something you know they paraded him through the street um they bought all sorts of tat and souvenirs with his face on plates and and stamps Mm. and and all kind of things people put his face up in their uh, houses they um they named their babies after him um they you know he was on the the outside of pub signs there were riots called the sacheverell riots because you know he, he inflamed such feeling in the country and he was um put on trial for sedition and not found guilty and then he was put on trial again for high crimes and misdemeanors which is the same thing they tried to get donald trump for and they found him guilty for that and they burned his speeches and this was the sort of the flashpoint and it's an extraordinary thing he was an incredibly influential uh figure and he essentially handed the election of 1710 to the tories you know he's this guy who basically swings the politics of the entire nation from one end of the spectrum to the other end. And he's a celebrity doing it, but he is a theologian. He's a conservative. He's a, he's a vicar. Um, you know, he's not some great, um, celebrity. He's not glamorous. He's not sexy. He's not a poet or a rock star or a highwayman. He is, you know, a high Anglican fellow in a stupid wig who gave a long ranty speech. And, and so politics and celebrity have been intertwined for 300 years and you get various 
politicians throughout history who tried to kind of harness the charisma of celebrity, the techniques of it, the technology of celebrity, whether that's photography and engravings and arts and so forth to kind of communicate what they look like and to give those sense of intimacy. And there are heroic political uh, political celebrities like Mirabeau in France, who then actually is found to be not heroic at all. And you've got your kind of Abraham Lincolns, who are these talismanic leaders in times of strife. He, you know, harnessed photography too. Um, it's really, really interesting that modern celebrity is, in many ways, we think of it as kind of superficial and, and vacuous. Actually, celebrity is an, is an economic system, and it's all about money. It's about an attention economy. We pay money to access the, the private lives of, of famous strangers. And celebrity doesn't necessarily, therefore, need to be crass and vacuous and superficial. It can actually be deeply profound and powerful. And it can deal with some of the most important questions in society. It's just how we access it. Celebrity is when we pay money to access those lives. And uh, so you get, yeah, people like Henry Sacheverell early on, and then later on people like Richard Cobden and various reformers. And through to the 1930s, you got Mosley, who tried to develop a kind of celebrity of sorts, rather sinister, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the 60s, you've got your JFKs and your later on your Nixons and then your Reagan, who of course was an actor. And then you get into the charismatic presidents of Clinton, who obviously oozed charisma, Obama, who's one of the great orators and, you know, genuinely charming and smooth. And then you get a genuine celebrity president. Donald Trump is in every way a celebrity who became president. And it's yeah. not that he became a celebrity because he's president. He became a celebrity. He was treated as a celebrity. He ran for office as a celebrity. The news networks covered him as a celebrity. So much so that all those things that celebrity culture gives us, which is endless novelty and drama and scandal and outrage and things which make us feel excited and, and thrilled, Trump gave us all of that. We were horrified and uh, outraged and disgusted and appalled, and it didn't matter because he's a celebrity and that's how celebrity works. So every other candidate who went up against him had to play by the rules, but he was, he was playing a different game. And so he got $5 billion of free media coverage because everyone went, this guy's an entertainment industry. This guy's a product. Mm -hmm. he's, he's not, he's not CNN, Donald Trump. He's NBC, Donald Trump. He's, he's the guy off the apprentice. He's ratings gold. He is a walking story. You know, every time he opens his mouth, we get headlines and they're not boring headlines. They're not like, you know, I'm going to put taxes up by 0.4%. <laughs> they're headlines like, you know, I'm going to nuke North Korea. It's, it, that's the level that he's operating at. So celebrity has always been part of politics. And what's really interesting is seeing modern political operatives, leaders, MPs and so on, trying to be authentic because authenticity really matters, but they're also trying to perform it and they're trying to do it in a very curated way. And it's a really tough battle because they, on the one hand, they're trying to be kind of smooth and not do anything that's going to screw them up. You know, so they're carefully orchestrating what their bookshelves look like behind their heads when they pose in photographs. And on the other <laughs> hand, they're trying to be matey and chill. You know, I mean, we've got the Chancellor of Exchequer was wearing a hoodie on Twitter this week, which mm -hmm. never would have happened 10 years ago. I mean, hug a hoodie was David Cameron's big speech about, you know, hoodies being like this sort of feral mob of, of youths who had to be, you know, we had to hug them nicer. And now the Chancellor of the Exchequer is wearing a hoodie and willingly putting that out there on Twitter. That is a performative form of 
hey, I'm just like you guys. And that is a type of celebrity performance. That's what people have done for a long time. So it's really interesting to see how the world's leaders have been reacting to the crisis and have been reacting to Instagram culture and Twitter and TikTok and all that kind of stuff. These are the new, um, they are the new playgrounds, but they're also the new battlegrounds. And you've got to perform like a celeb. And yet at the same time, you've got to be real. And that's hard. Mm. I don't, I mean, I know that this question sort of threatens to throw you into a great big world of psychology that, that is probably <laughs> too large to address right now. But what, I mean, where does our love of celebrity come from? Because it's different from admiration for accomplishment, isn't it? It has this, this sort of component part of an intrigue about someone's private life, which is separate to you know, the way we might think about, I don't know, Einstein or something. I, I know you can't separate them completely, but, but it feels slightly different to that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I try in the book to answer those questions, but some of those questions just aren't, aren't really answerable. You know, people have had various attempts at them. Um, you know, there's, I mean, I guess you can go down an evolutionary biology route and you can say, okay, celebrities are basically the, the alpha males, that they are the chimp kings of our society and we're all just sort of shit smeared chimps looking at them going i I want to be the alpha male and and we're desperately trying to emulate them and copy them because that way maybe we get you know more sustainable influence in society that kind of thing that's one angle i'm not hugely convinced by that angle but you know that's an angle um there are the psychological angles which say well you know we are not really wired to be in such an enormous society as we are, we, you know, essentially we're social animals. We're deeply social. We we groom each other in in friendly ways by chatting and gossiping and nattering in the same way that chimps pick lice off each other's hair. But we aren't really built to be a society of sixty five million people. That's just not how we evolved. And so ultimately, for us, we find celebrity very confusing because we think of them as our friends or neighbours mm-hmm. because we recognise them. It's a thing called parasocial intimacy, where you've got a one way intimacy. On the one hand, we know everything there is to know about this person. They're really famous. We know what they look like. We know about their love life. We know what tattoos they've got and where they holiday. On the other hand, they don't know anything about us. Mm. If we met them in the street, we'd be like, oh my God, it's Cameron Diaz. But she'd be like, who's this strange man in my way? (laughs) So um, that is a very strange thing. And that's created by the reproduction technologies that we have. So television, newspapers, Twitter, Instagram, radio, etc. Those things allow the mass production of a celebrity image to disseminate. So there are loads and loads of Cameron Diaz's. There are millions of them because she's an image that lives in the internet and she lives in my head. She lives in your head. She is a movie star. Um, I don't know why I picked Cameron Diaz. She, she was my favourite when I was 14. That's what's happened, I think. She's my, wonderful. I mean, I think it's a fantastic choice. <laughs> she's, I've always loved her because she's gorgeous, but she's also really funny. And I, she was always yeah. my big sort of Hollywood crush. But she, <laughs> she exists in in multiple places at once. She is a quantum celebrity because ultimately reproduction technology allows them to be everywhere and also allows them not to age. She will forever mm-hmm. be that beautiful person in, you know, that movie, The Mask that I saw when I was 14 or whatever, mm-hmm. because that film exists and will never not exist. So the weird thing about celebrity culture is that it's everywhere. So we start to think of it as just normal. And we think of these people as friends, neighbors, co-workers almost and so when you meet them accidentally you know you stumble into a celebrity you sort of look at them and go hey i know you from somewhere are you my brother's friend 
<laughs> did, did we go to school together? And actually, it turns out you're turning, you know, you're talking to Kira Knightley. Um, but you're in your head, you're like, I'm sure we met in a nightclub in Slough. No? All right. Was it Reading? <laughs> yeah. So there's a kind of there's a sort of weirdness there. So the psychology of that, that kicks in. And then you have arguments about religion. So you have people like Emil Durkheim and, and various other sort of early sociologists who said, well, look, maybe this is a religious instinct, that we are programmed to worship stuff. We can't help it. We all need gods in our life. But secularism and consumerism and capitalism has given us new gods. We all gather around and we worship the great altar of uh, whoever it is. I can't think of a celebrity now. Now I've said that. Okay, let's let's agree. We're all going to worship at the altar of Harry You're Styles. Just trying not to say Cameron Diaz. I'm trying not to say Cameron Diaz right now. <laughs> let's all worship at the altar of Harry Styles. He is great. We will um, we will share the prayer of Harry Styles. We will read his lyrics. We will um, look upon the votive offerings. We you know the ticket stubs from the gigs we went to go see when we saw him live. Those things will become. Uh, holy relics and his body has a sacred power if you touch him you you know you quiver with excitement you shriek you scream which is what happens with you know fans when they meet their idols so all these sort of physiological things kick in when we meet people that we have spent 20 years 10 years five years two years just staring at them going oh my god i love you i fancy you so much and you meet them and then you freak out and that's not normal so some people say right that's a religious instinct that's essentially the divine but Mm -hmm then you see them on Twitter being absolute bellends <laughs> doing <laughs> songs about fried fish. And you're like, Oh, maybe not. Maybe they're not quite so divine after all. So one of the funny things about this coronavirus sort of lockdown is it actually is sort of demystifying the cult of celebrity a little bit. We're starting mm-hmm. to see some of the, the reality of it, but yeah, a celebrity is fascinating. And I'll be honest, you know, when I wrote the book, I, I don't think I had all the answers and I still don't think I've got them all, but what I was trying to do was write a funny, entertaining book that uh, basically subverted a lot of what you assumed. Most of us think celebrities 20th century. It just isn't. It's much older than that. And I tried to sort of tackle a lot of the questions about, well, okay, what is a celebrity and how does it work and how did it emerge and why did it emerge in the first place? And are there parallels between now and then? Yes, there are. Well, that's really interesting. Why is that? <clears throat> but what are the differences? Well, obviously technology and speed and all that kind of stuff. So, it's a funny, light-hearted book, but actually, deep down, there's actually quite a lot of uh, hard thinking in there, and it took me four years to write it. So, oh, wow. it's, it is quite nerdy, but it actually, you know, it comes with sort of, you know, silly jokes and, and, and quite a light-hearted tone. Um, the Guardian liked it, the Daily Mail less so. So that tells you a lot about the kind of book it that is. That sounds um, like a pretty good break to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you've ended up on the right side of the Daily Mail, Guardian, hatred and love divide. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't deliberate. I mean, if the Daily Mail was going to like the book, I wasn't going to throw it back in their face. I mean, maybe, maybe, <laughs> I mean, you know, but I mean, the, the truth is you work really hard on the thing. And when people write, write reviews, I mean, I've had six reviews this week and uh, most of them positive, one, one bad. And you just sort of go, yeah, all right, that's fine. That's fine. Because, you know, mm-hmm. you can't always get great reviews, but it is a strange thing where you, you put so much work into a thing and then someone doesn't like it and you immediately want to go, oh, <laughs> but, but it's great. <laughs> I work really hard <laughs> on it. Why don't you like it? Um, but of course, I, you know, I write in a very specific style. I, I work in comedy. I work in horrible histories. I work with comedians a lot. I write with a certain sense of humor. That's just who I am. It's my technique. It's my style. Not everyone likes it. That's okay. That's fine. So yeah, it's been a strange week trying to launch a book uh, in the midst of all this. 
sort of panic and also having to sort of deal with the fact that not everyone gets my sense of humour. But, you know, that's okay. <laughs> as long as the right people get it, I think you're, you're right. <laughs> Hey, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that is the end of today's uh, edition of the Bunker Daily. Thank you for joining us, Greg. What are you, what are you up to later? Uh, I think I'm probably going to crack on with making an episode for kids about the space race, I think is the, uh, the next thing. And uh, yeah, if that goes well, we'll do some others. So yeah. That sounds like you've set history podcast for about my level of literacy. So I'm going to jump <laughs> right on that and learn myself. Um, we have a full length edition of the bunker, which will be out uh, tomorrow morning. That's Wednesday. Uh, so why not subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify so that you don't miss it? And remember, our live stream is on Thursday night. Follow us on Twitter at bunker underscore dot pod or Romaniacs cast for the details. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt and produced by Andrew Harrison. Jacob Archbold was the assistant producer and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.